New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today, talking with George Lee, who is in New York. You've been based in New York for a a little while during the pandemic. Uh, George, how are you? Yeah, looking good today and uh, the sun's shining, so uh, it's been a good day. Fantastic. So yours is a really interesting uh, really interesting story and you know really keen to uh, to to delve in we've been chatting a little bit over the past past few weeks on clubhouse and i don't know how many kiwis there are working across uh, nasa i guess uh, there's a there's a little bit of a a background there with uh, william pickering playing quite a big role at um, nasa jet propulsion laboratories which is where uh, you're based but yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting uh, learning some of the things that you do. So I was keen to delve into um, some of your your backstory, maybe to start with. So yeah, tell us uh, tell us about your your upbringing and um, you know how how where that happened, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, uh, uh, born in China, but uh, moved over to New Zealand when I was three. And uh, did all the the schooling there, all the way through high school. Um, Epsom Normal Primary School down in down in Epsom, Rungwera Intermediate, and then um, thankfully got a lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to King's College. Uh, so I'm a King's boy as well. And uh, yeah, did after that did a year and a bit. Um, at Auckland University just because of the way the academic calendars synced up with America and then uh, finished uh, my degree electrical engineering material science engineering at uh, University of Michigan here in, in uh, America. I'm sort of keen to d- delve back a little bit in terms of like when when did you start getting interested in in space and you know these these sorts of things? What was sort of your the, your first sort of memory in terms of whether it's sort of you know looking up at the stars or can, can you remember how far back that goes? <laughs> it's going to be a very dry answer, and it's uh. going to be uh, I I honestly cannot remember if um, space was really it wasn't really a dream. Um, in the sort of um, fairy tale sense that actually a lot of the people here have, um, just because in New Zealand's that it's not really a it's not that much of a thing, right? Um, well, it didn't used up. to be, but it's cha- it's changing. No, it right? is now, right? Yeah, which is very <laughs> cool. But but it wasn't really um, when I was younger, and um, I always knew it was going to be engineering of some sort. Um, what? engineering that would be was still up in the air um, but space really wasn't on the on the horizon because New Zealand didn't, didn't have a space agency um, at least not you know I think when, when did the New Zealand space agency agency start up like within the last five ten years um, and so when was it that you went to university when did you start off at Auckland so university? I actually just finished uh, in 18 um so, very recently, actually, I've only been 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 out for like two years. Um, so it's been a long journey. Um, 
but yeah, like the the when when I was young, there, there wasn't really a space agency. Australia's space agency is only two years old as well, um, so it was really just um, uh, choosing an engineering, and I, you know I didn't know where that would take me. Um, I knew I didn't want to do civil or uh, chemical, anything like that, which is uh, very New Zealand. Um, that's the big engineering disciplines in New Zealand is civil engineering and mechanical, uh, chemical. Um, I knew I didn't want to do those, so um, ended up deciding with electrical. And while I was doing electrical, um, found more interest in material science as well along the way, so I went on to do a material science uh, engineering as well. And this was yeah. once you got to um, University of Michigan? Yeah, all at Michigan. Um, so I, I did like the one-year broad taste of everything at Auckland and then um, Michigan specialized in EE and then added uh, material science on top of that and um, EE? Uh, electrical Elect- electrical yeah. engineering electrical yeah. engineering yep good, good. and then yeah added material science on top of that which is as the name suggests cool materials and when you combine that with electrical engineering it ends up with types of semiconductors novel materials, how you can use materials to create you know, electrical effects that you want that are beneficial to you. Um, so added that on top. And while I was there, um, I joined a cube satellite team or research project that was happening at Michigan. And uh, that was my first foray into space. And that is, I'm still involved with them. And that project was funded by NASA JPL. So Right, so that sort of that was the big the big change for for you in terms of focusing in on on space effectively. But that's not an opportunity that would come up at too many universities. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, no. So that's uh, one of the reasons why I I left. um, And I I, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of opportunities. Um, Australia and New Zealand are still very young in um, the space industry and actually just generally in electrical engineering. Um, we don't have a very well-developed, uh, super high-tech, cutting-edge sort of industry. The industry, industry is there, but it's, it's very commercial and it's, you know, the only stuff that's happening is sort of deep within the universities and very much research. Um, Whereas in the States, you have, well, it's the States, need I say more, right? Um, and yeah, University of Michigan is America's largest public research university. And uh, I don't know what the endowment is, but it is mega billions. Um, so yeah, in terms of opportunities, um, that was really the reason why I left. Australia was on the boards for a little bit. Um, I was looking at Melbourne and uh, uh, Monash, um, but they they didn't really have the degree programs and again the opportunities that I was looking for. So um, yeah, ended up at Michigan and yeah, I mean, how many universities in the world have a CubeSat team? Although um, coming into the future, it's looking pretty bright. It's it's getting much more affordable and much more accessible now for university teams to, to, to set up a CubeSat 
um, mission of some sort or research project. So yeah, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? The the opportunities as and this is you know we're part of where Rocket Lab plays, of course, um, is the cost of of getting things up into space is uh, is coming down and. Yeah, I would be very curious to see sort of what interactions there might be and what what crossovers there might be between, you know, agencies and entities such you know such such as Rocket Lab, and universities you know here in in New Zealand. So that's certainly something. For yeah, future. I, I think New Zealand is lucky in that we have uh, Rocket Lab right there. Um, it's still not cheap, and and by New Zealand standards, it's pretty expensive really, yes. um, for, you know, the relative budget sizes, you know, if the cost of launch is still a big chunk of the available budget that any uh, funding that any project in a New Zealand university will have available, um, because New Zealand's small space industry doesn't receive a lot of funding. Um, there isn't really much research, you know, in New Zealand as a country in that sector, um, other than what Rocket Lab has started recently. Um, so, you know, and for New Zealand, I think it's still definitely very young, um, still early days. Um, the CubeSat development costs are very, very low now. You know, everything is available off the shelf, basically. All you have to do is figure out what your payload, your scientific payload is going to be, what sensors you want to put on it and whatever. Um, and then now with Virgin Orbit, um, not only is New Zealand um, going to take about, be able to take advantage of that, but also other countries that traditionally don't have a, a launch site, um, you know, within driving range or anything like that. So Africa, even Europe, um, and Asia, those countries which traditionally don't have access to a close-by launch platform, um, now just needs to have an airport that can take off with a 747. And you know, it's 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 quick, it's cheap compared to a big a big rocket, and um, it's 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 a big deal really in the in the academic sector um, to allow this this access to to, to students. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful, and I'm looking forward to what uh, Rocket Lab Peter Beck's up to. I am watching them with a keen eye. <laughs> And I have got a few emails um, from them. So, yeah, I am, sure. I am helpful. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Virgin Orbit because really it's it's only been very recently that um, Virgin Orbit have sort of crossed that line, isn't it, in terms of being viable, in terms of actually you know being able to put um, uh, CubeSats up into orbit, right? This is, I mean, it's been quite a number, you know, a, a long journey to um, to get there. But um, it's, is it just this year that um, yeah, January exceeded seventeenth of this year? We were actually a payload on their first successful orbital flight. Um, so we were slated. We've been slated to launch with them for many years now, um, yep. and it's been pushed back repeatedly over the years. And we were supposed to launch in 18, 2018. That didn't happen. Pushed back to last year. Um, didn't happen at the original planned planned delivery time. Pushed back until November, and then uh, finally um, they went. All right, you know, after the original launch demo one, which I don't know if many people watched outside of the states or outside of the industry, um, but launch demo one was a successful failure in uh, space terms. 
and are boarded during the stage separation between stage one and stage two, approximately two minutes in, um, which is a little bit worrying, but actually um, the fact that are boarded successfully is actually a pretty pretty good thing because it means that we keep our data and um, it's recoverable. So uh, it aborted successfully, so it was a successful failure. And uh, yes, yeah, so our launch got pushed back because of that, and we were slated to launch on the flight after that, which is launch demo two. And I've got a mission patch for it here somewhere. Oh, that's which, cool. Of course, the viewers can't see, but you can see. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, we launched on launch demo two, which is very cool and very scary, I, I, I must admit. Because they, they haven't been to orbit before. and NASA didn't know went, whether it was going right. to get yeah. there or not. Yeah. I think it surprised both uh, both Virgin Orbit and the payload teams. <laughs> um, because there were 10 payloads on there, all NASA funded. Yeah, uh, We were there, JPL NASA funded. Uh, NASA Ames had a Tech Ed Sat, which is one in a very long generation of uh, CubeSats that they've been putting up. And eight other universities from all over the place were on board on that on that flight and NASA went alright we trust you here you go here's 10 payloads on your right after a successful failure we're going to trust you on launch demo 2 and we hope that you can take us to orbit and they did you know credit with it's credit so cool. to um, and it was very very cool watching the live stream it was very scary um, but you know, it's not every day you get to see a rocket dropped off the wing of a seven four seven, and then uh, get a photo of your satellite in space, which is pretty cool. So, um, yeah, it's it's actually a very big deal that Virgin Orbit were successful. Um, uh, yeah, and great to be able to be a be a part of that. But it highlights that the risks that still exist, doesn't it? That uh, you know, even you know, with uh, with Rocket Lab, they seem to have a you know, they had an amazing run and things were going so well, and you know, and then they they had one that um, you know failed there as well. So uh, you know, these things are really, really, uh, really challenging still, and you know, I'm sure that the the success rate will you know certainly be at a at a higher level. I'm presuming, um, certainly on the sort of more predictable types of uh, types of things, but uh, you always need to push the limits, right, and do do new things. So the the risk factors are going to remain. Yeah, cubesats are. Um, it's something that we've, as engineers, have been a little bit slack upon, um, which is informing the public and the general public sector, um, and the general public and the people who are footing the bill, really. Um, about the risks and um, I think people have gotten used to the success rates that we have um, both at NASA JPL but also just in launches in general by um, all the different vendors, SpaceX uh, ULA, the Russians uh, Roscosmos, Soyuz um, and they've been they've got used to the very high success rate um, but the reality is that the success rate is actually very low um, in terms of CubeSats, the success rate is, I think it's 60% failure um, across the board from a 2018 study um, where they, they looked and uh, counted all the different missions that went up, and it's approximately 60% failure. Um, it's actually, or maybe I've got that the wrong way around, 60% success. Either way, it's not a great number. Yeah. Um, 
and it's there's there's just a lot of things that can go wrong with a cube set especially and i think people take it for granted that the once you get it up to, into orbit it's the job done but actually this getting up getting it up into orbit surviving that flight is actually incredibly incredibly difficult and there's a lot of things that can go wrong um and i i think a lot of people take it for granted that you know it's as simple as just getting this thing up there and it's it works but really the consumer electronics are, are not designed for <laughs> environments like space and environments like what is basically riding a bomb up into space yeah <laughs> um, so you know i think people take it for granted but um and it always calls into question, you know, is, is the money worth it or anything like that. Um, and, and in terms of CubeSats, they are very, they're cheap. They're incredibly cheap by space standards. Um, and with that what, cost... What's a typical cost, you know? Because a lot of it's got to be the, the people time that goes in. The years and years go in because you don't want to, you know, the launch is so expensive. You don't want to yeah. waste that opportunity, right? Yeah, so typically they run um, probably the cheapest you'll po- possibly get developer down to is 100, 150,000 US, uh, USD. And big missions, um, they run probably just over 1 to 2 million. Um, so like the, the JPL Marco A and Marco B that went to Mars with the InSight lander, those were 2 million-ish um, satellites each. And in satellite speak, that is that is pocket change. That's incredibly, incredibly cheap. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely more affordable than building a, a full-size satellite. Um, and along with that, the launch costs are much cheaper when you're sending a loaf of bread-sized satellite that weighs three kilograms versus a three-ton thing um, up into space. So, yeah, along with that comes a lot of give and take and it's a lot of give uh, really because you're doing off the shelf off the shelf components you're doing less flight tested materials you're doing non you know you're not testing to the same extent things aren't shielded to the same extent things are exposed there's a there's a lot of things that you have to give to get that price down and to get it down into a form factor that is a CubeSat size, um, and that leads to a pretty uh, tragic um, success rate, really. Um, but really, the, the, again, you have to go back to the use case of what a CubeSat is used for, and it's for technology demonstration. It's for academic research. It's not for, you know, these aren't capstone missions. The, these aren't the big strategic missions that you're sending to faraway places. These are the CubeSats came about because we wanted a platform that were that was cheap, re, uh, cheap, basically throw throw away in terms of cost and uh, materials, and just something that you could use to demonstrate technology, demonstrate that this can be flown and that it works, and then from there you migrate to a full size mission. Yeah. But the caps, the the cubesats more recently have found an academic use and that it can bring access to many students around the world. Um, but what it started as, and what it still is, is it's designed to prove some concept that does not, at its current stage, deserve full funding for a full-fledged mission. 
you need gotcha. to prove that it works then from there on. So, you know, it's it's one of those high-risk, high-reward uh, sort of gambles that, that you do with the CubeSat. Oh, that's really cool to drill into that. Now, for those that, that don't know, you alluded a bit to size there. I read... Um a while ago, that the 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 standard size of of a cube set is basically you know ten centimeters by ten centimeters, you know by ten centimeters, mm-hmm. a, a really a quite a small cube. Um, you mentioned sort of you know loaf of bread um, type thing. Are there different uh, configurations and and sizes to a to a degree? Yeah, so cube sets by definition are made up of. Uh, basically Lego bricks and they start as small as one U, one unit and one unit is as you described 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters which is approximately the size of a mug um, in terms of working volume that you have um, and then you can piece those Legos together so the standard sizes the standard configurations are one U two U three U you stack them on top length uh, the long way around so you end up with a loaf of bread and then from there, you double that. 3U goes to 6U. So you put two loaves of bread side by side. And then you can double that again, and you can go to 12U. And you put that side by side. Um, there's also an 8U somewhere in between there. Um, and those are the standard standard sizes. 1, 2, 3, 6, 12 are the five standard sizes. And they, they're only standard because... Um, launch integrators, the people who actually make the launch pods that fit on the rockets, they've made them for these easy shapes configurations, you know. The 1U, 2U, 3U is just a long rectangular block, and then 6U is just a wider rectangular block, and then 12U is just a big, you know, car battery size thing. So, you know, they're, they're easy shapes to work with, so that's, that's how the, the configurations have come about. That's really interesting. Um, and so how hard was it for you to get onto this um, CubeSat uh, team at, um, at University of Michigan? How, you know, how much of a um, you know, demand is there? How many people are sort of interested in, in doing that? Was, uh, was that, a, that must be pretty pivotal in terms of your, your journey. Yeah, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy. I had an easier journey than most because they were looking uh, specifically for a very specific role, which was communications. And that's a very, very small sub-team, and not many people do that. Um, the other sub-teams are very difficult to get into. So if you're doing mechanical engineering structures of the CubeSat, very difficult to get into. If you're doing plasma science, orbital mechanics, uh, software, CDH, command data handling, if you're a software engineer, it is almost impossible to get in there um, because they their team you know, is, is four people and those four people aren't going anywhere. So, you know, you, you sort of have to come about at the right time when someone's leaving um, or they need more hands. So uh, not very easy at all, really. Right, so it's sort of a mix. It could be a mix of being strategic and being lucky or, you know, just sometimes these things just uh, fall into yeah, place. A, a little bit of right place, right time um, to a certain extent. Although, you know, if you can always, you know, if, if you're really interested, you can email the PI, the principal investigator, and go, here you go, here's my resume. Is there a spot on the team for me? And it might not be the one that you want, but, 
lateral transition once you're in is much easier than trying to get that one spot um, that, that that you're looking for. Yeah, right. Uh, so you know, once you were working, you know, on the the CubeSat there, Michigan, and that was being funded by by NASA JPL. Mm-hmm. What were the sort of steps from there that have ended up with with you landing a role, um, you know, with NASA yeah, so JPL? It's it's just research. Um, so the research that happened, uh, sort of in the development of the satellite, uh, just was a very easy transition um, because they're doing the same stuff. And basically, it was working on uh, the preamplifiers of the radio system and. Uh, CubeSat radio systems aren't, again, they're mostly off the shelf, so there isn't much going on uh, generally in most CubeSat missions. However, our mission was unique in that we had a very uh, noisy environment that we were going into in terms of radio frequencies um, because of, one, our our space tether, (laughs) and uh, we can go into that later, Uh, our space tether, but also because of our... uh, the, the... immediate space that the satellite was in was very, very busy in terms of plasma environment. Um, it was just a terrible environment for radio frequencies. There was a lot of noise, and uh, we were working on uh, designing a new way or a more efficient way to amplify signals um, that we were sending and receiving um, because of one hour our restrictions in terms of power and, again, trying to punch through all that noise. Um, and that is exactly what the Deep Space Network is trying to do as well, um, because we are we are working with spacecraft that are millions of miles and millions of kilometers away, and that is coming back through at a little mouse whisper through the atmosphere, and you have to pick that up and amplify that up to a usable usable level. Um, so that that sort of follows on quite nicely. Oh, very. That's very convenient. Uh, yeah, it was very convenient. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. So, um, and I'm kind of curious, getting into the US, um, how hard you know how hard is that process? I mean, I guess it depends what you're doing, and and in your case, you have got sort of NASA trying to sponsor you in. That's probably going to be at the easier end of the scale. Well, no, because I I got in for for studies um, for, for university so yeah it, it's much easier to go do a degree there and then while you're there look for employment and that employer will sponsor you um, that is by far the easiest way to get to go um, trying to get a job first that will sponsor you is just near impossible um, so yeah I was already there as a student so pretty simple from that point of view yeah yeah and when you say near impossible you're not trying to put off other other people that are keen to give it a go just this is this is the direction um that's obviously worked worked well for you and um yeah i mean it's 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 sort of just the reality is they they only accept a certain quota per year and they're only going to take the people from the top of the pile um in terms of the lottery uh, that's the visa lottery and the green card lottery both um, but the other one is, uh, you know, if you're trying to apply for a job, then they will obviously prefer a domestic, someone who is A, already there, or already has 
the visa and the necessary requirements to stay there to work for them. Uh, you know, that they, they very, very seldom will go, here's Joe Bloggs from New Zealand, he's never been to the States, but we want him so bad that we're going to sponsor and sort out all the paperwork for him at our cost. You know, that's... <laughs> That's not not really the the yeah, reality of it for yeah for, yeah for people. Yeah, so yeah. you had some pretty pretty unique skills. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you're amazing, they will headhunt you, and they will, you know, the whatever hoops that they have to jump through, they'll jump through. Um, but they, you, you have to really succeed where you already are first. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and. Yeah, so uh, tell us about that path into um, into NASA JPL from from your work. Was that uh, from from studying? Was that a reasonably easy transition? Once you, I mean, how many hoops did you actually have to jump through uh, to get the role that you? Um, that yeah, got? Um, not not too many um, because uh, again, the the project was JPL funded, so they were already hands on in that. In that uh, in that respect, and the PIs at Michigan, um, the PI for this particular project, and also one of the consulting uh, professors, are both have history with NASA. So the PI here wrote the textbook for space tethers for Kennedy Space Center. He, in 1999, literally wrote the wrote the handbook and gave it to Kennedy. Um, and the consulting is James Cutler, Jamie Cutler, who is. Uh, was chief engineer of the Gri- the Griffix mission at JPL, which is the one of the weather, basically a weather satellite. Although they won't like me saying that, they they are effectively a weather satellite. Um, a very successful mission, um, and he you know he's affiliated with JPL as well. So uh, <laughs> you know it was just a hey, um, yeah, I, I do you have any work for me? <laughs> sort of situation. Knock on the door. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Now you've mentioned space tether a, a, a couple of times, but it, it's probably not a, a term that those outside of your sector necessarily so familiar with. What's uh, what's the space tether? Yeah, uh, space tethers. They are um, very very cool, and they've been depicted a few times in various ways in sci-fi. Um, mostly as space elevators, although we are talking about a completely different thing, concept from space elevators. What we're talking about is um, a, a tether, a length of cable wiring that connects two satellites together in space. Um, it's called an electrodynamic tether, and the key word there is electrodynamic, meaning that there's things, there's physical things happening with electricity. Um, and so basically that what happens is we are trying to use the concept of this tether to provide a way for satellites to uh, maintain their orbits, to accelerate and decelerate without using propul- uh, propellant. So fuelless propulsion is, uh, is the cash- catchphrase that we're going for. Um, so traditionally, uh, the reason why we want this is traditionally satellites... Uh, will will fall back down to Earth naturally just because of the drag that they experience in uh, Earth orbit, especially low Earth orbit. The lower your orbit, 
the more drag you're experiencing due to the atmosphere. And over time, that drag will slow you down. As you slow down, you will drop closer and closer. Eventually, you'll burn up in the atmosphere. So the ways that satellites counteract that is normally they bring up fuel in the in forms of either small uh, small thrusters or cold gas, like basically a fire extinguisher, little, little gas canisters that they fire um, in order to... Uh, station keep to maintain their speed and to maintain their altitude um, and basically they periodically have to fire to maintain their speed and maintain their, their altitude and of course these are perishable they you know over time you're going to use up all your fuel and then you don't have any more fuel to maintain your orbit um, and that leads to many uh, many of the issues and restrictions um, that we have seen up to date with uh, how expensive these satellites are. Satellites are big, traditionally, because they bring up a lot of fuel with them to keep them up there. You know, you're spending a lot of money on the launch, and to put a satellite up there, you want the satellite to last as long as possible. Most, most generally, you want, you want it to last as long as possible. And to do that, you have to bring more fuel with it to keep it up there as long as possible. And the more fuel you bring, the more expensive it is. So it becomes this massive catch-22 where... You want the satellite up there for as long as possible because you're spending a lot of money to keep it up there. Um, Makes a lot of and, sense. Yeah, it's, it's this funny catch-22, and there's quite a few of them in space. Um, in both power, management, electricity, it's, there's a lot of catch-22s. And this is one of the biggest ones economically, financially, in supporting these missions. So if you were to hypothetically find a way to allow satellites to maintain their orbit without needing to bring all of that fuel with them. All of a sudden, your satellites can be smaller, your launches can be cheaper, and you can send more up at a, at a, at a, at a time. So, you know, it's, it's infinitely beneficial, and it's definitely something that uh, a lot of people have been aspiring towards, and not just via EDTs. You know, the most recent are the ion thrusters, the hole thrusters that Starlink, for example, has, and it's just basically shooting out uh, ionized gas particles and that is your reaction mass and you can fill you can fit a lot more gas in, into a certain volume than you can other sorts of uh, thrusters what, sorry EDTs what was that so EDTs are electrodynamic tethers so that's that's the system that we're testing on board our CubeSat uh, yep. Yep. Um, and it is uh, a tether again connecting a smaller satellite it's called a PicoSat meaning about the size of your iPhone, and then the main body of the satellite, which is the 3U satellite. And this tether is electrically conductive. It's basically, a, imagine a copper power cable that you've stretched and connected these two satellites together with. And what happens is, if you think back to your high school physics classes, is if you drive a current through this cable... And that cable is going through a magnetic field. In this case, it's Earth's magnetic field. Uh, then you end up with a net force that's exerted that is uh, perpendicular to the direction of travel and the direction of magnetic forces. So you might have done this with um, like electric motors or generators in, in high school. Um, and it's called the Lorentz force. So if you drive a current upwards from the small satellite upwards to a higher altitude to the main body and that cable 
is flying and cutting through Earth's magnetic field, then you're going to exert, you're going to, that cable is going to feel a force that pushes it either forwards along the direction of travel or backwards against the direction of travel. So you can point it forwards, increase your speed or maintain your speed and counteract the drag that your spacecraft is feeling. Or if you want to deorbit now, then you can point it backwards and your, your aircraft will start slowing down, your spacecraft will start slowing down and you'll, you'll deorbit faster. Um, so that's the basic concept of an of a electrodynamic tether. And uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're the first uh, CubeSat to actually fly a system like this. Fascinating. So. That's really cool. Ah, great. Um, now, I'm, let's, let's delve in a little bit to, um, to your main work now at, at NASA and what you're focused on. And um, I think you allude a little bit to, uh, to you know, some of the challenges of communications in, uh, in space. Um, yeah, do you want to um, give us yeah, a little, so. little bit of an overview of what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm affiliated with the Micro Devices Laboratory um, at JPL, which is basically, as the name suggests, a laboratory where you work on micro devices. So everything, so actually a very cool piece of heritage um, that came out of the MDL lab at JPL is the CMOS sensor, which of course we take for granted now. It is on your cell phones, it's on your computers, it's in your cameras, your DSLRs, even your mirrorless set, you know, cameras. They use a CMOS sensor that originally came from the laboratory down the, you know, three doors down from where I am. Um, so that's a, you know, that's the sort of work that we're doing there. And it's, it's uh, imaging sensors, it's micro devices, it's how do you make these new novel materials, how do you string them together. We're even making an atomic clock in there. Um, so everything that's small is being worked on there. And in particular... Another thing that they work on is uh, uh, they work a lot with cryogenic materials, which is why we are there, um, because we are working with pre-amplifiers. And pre-amplifiers, as the name suggests, is the first stage in an amplification uh, series of amplification stages. And uh, primarily our work is designed to be implemented in the Deep Space Network, which is run by JPL. And it's a, a series of radio telescopes that we use to communicate with spacecraft that is not in Earth or lunar orbit. So any spacecraft that's not in Earth, uh, orbiting around Earth or not orbiting around the moon is considered in deep space. So that's the Mars missions, the Voyager missions, uh, New Horizons, the asteroid missions, OSIRIS-REx, Polus, Parker, uh, Solar Probe that's orbiting the Sun. All of these missions are called deep space missions. And... At the DSpace network, we support those missions by providing tracking, communications, downlink, all of that, those services. And um, so a little bit of background, I guess, for the DSpace network is it's a series of 13 antennas with a 14th coming online later this year, uh, arranged around the, around the globe. So we've got the main DSN site, which is uh, in Goldstone, California. There's one down in Canberra, Australia, and then there's one in Madrid, Spain. And the reason these sites have been chosen is that they are approximately 120 degrees separated from each other around the globe, which means that if you were to point, pick any arbitrary spot in the sky, at any one point in time, one of those stations is pointing 
has a direct line of sight with that spot. So, for example, in Mar- if we're talking about Mars, at any one point in time, one of those stations is able to have a direct line of sight with Mars. And as Earth rotates, and as we rotate around the Sun, we just switch stations as, it, as, as we rotate. So during Perseverance, uh, when Perseverance was landing on Mars earlier this year, Madrid, Spain had a direct line of sight with, uh, with Mars. So Madrid was the main communications downlink uh, location, and that's what we were using. Um, so, yeah, um, now we have these 13 uh, ground radio telescopes that are pointing out at the sky. And what's happening is you have a spacecraft far away, and it's transmitting radio signals back at Earth. And it doesn't matter what those are, but it's transmitting uh, radio signals, and it only has a certain power that it's able to transmit at. And the analogy that I like to use is one of a crowded bar. You and a friend are in a crowded bar, and you're standing right next to each other. You're able to have a very easy, normal conversation with each other. Maybe you have to lean a little bit closer, but you're able to have a full conversation with each other. Now, if you and your friend start moving away from each other across the bar through the crowd and you don't raise your voice anymore now all of a sudden you're trying to have a conversation without increasing the volume at which you're speaking so now you have to speak slower you have to mouth your words more carefully you have to enunciate so that is in effect what's happening in deep space you are moving further and further away but you're not transmitting any stronger you're not transmitting with more power because the spacecraft has power Restrictions. You can't just arbitrarily keep increasing the volume. So you're restricted to a certain volume. And as you move further and further away, you have to transmit a little bit slower. You have to send less information at a point of, uh, over time. And that leads to pretty tragic uh, communications uh, speeds, I guess, or, or uh, bit rates. Yeah, um, that's a great description, great analogy. Yeah, so, so that's, that's one that I like to give. Um, yeah. Yeah, and part of the, the reason behind that is what happens is when you're receiving that information, it gets muddled up, um, and there's a lot of things that happen. But if you, if you are, say, just in Earth orbit, you're able to transmit a lot of information, and what happens is that information, the, the, the volume, if you will, of that information compared to the surrounding noise is very, very high. Um, so that means you can transmit a lot of it, and it's very, very easy to pick out what is information and what is not. When you're further away, the distance that that particle has to travel and the amount of information that you're receiving from the spacecraft, if you think about uh, each burst of radio transmission as a single like particle that's flying at Earth, and that you're, you're receiving a fraction of that. Um, and that means that what's called the signal-to-noise ratio is tragic. You're, you've got a lot of noise here on Earth, and you're receiving a tiny little signal from far away. So the, now the challenge is not only do we have to pe- find that signal amongst the noise, but we have to amplify that signal up to a usable level without introducing more error and introducing more artifacts. Um, so that's what the preamplifier does. So the moment you see these big parabolic dishes pointing up at the sky, the moment that radio signal hits that dish and it bounces into the, the single point in the middle, and 
the first thing that it needs is a preamplifier, and that's that's the system that we're working on. And that brings the level from negative 10 to the 23 kilowatts, which is just a number, you know, that's one with 23 zeros behind it. That's That's a ridiculous number. That's how small you're doing no, 0.000023 times, that is how much power you're receiving. And you have to amplify that up to a couple hundred watts. And we operate at 400 watts on the downlink. Uh, so at, by the time that that signal, which is 0.023 times zero, by the time it reaches the end of the amplification stages, we're working at double or three triple digit watts. So that is... a a 26 order of magnitude increase that we're trying to work with without introducing more noise. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the stuff that we're working on is how, how can we do that? And, um, it ends up with a very cool piece of tech called a maser. And I realize I'm lecturing a little bit now, Paul, so feel free to stop me. No, no, this is fascinating. I'm sure uh, listeners are going to appreciate you uh, delving in. We we don't uh, get to hear from too many space geeks, so uh, yeah, it's great. yeah, yeah. So it's it's we we use something called a maser, and a lot of people will have heard of lasers with an L, lasers, which stands for light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation, and light, lasers are very very cool. We can see them and. They're a lot of fun to play with, and they've got a lot of uses. Um, what we're working with is masers with an M, which stands for microwave amplification, stimulated emission of radiation. So the, the concept is the same, except that you can't see it. We're working with the microwave spectrum of the EM uh, spectrum, which is sort of around, I guess, if you will, the, the infrared. Um, it, it's not visible to your eyes. Um, but that is the frequency at which we're communicating with. So all of our communications via the expand, uh, via the deep space network happens at X-band, which is approximately 8.4 gigahertz. Your Wi-Fi is sort of S-band, I guess, um, which is 2 to 4 gigahertz. So Wi-Fi is 2.4 gigahertz normally. We now have 5.1 as well. Traditionally, it was 2.1 gigahertz. And before that, we had L-band, which is for the old ones. So Voyager, which is almost 50 years old now, that communicates on S-band. It's basically a glorified Wi-Fi signal that you're trying to screen back at Earth. And the more modern missions now are using X-band, which is 8.4 gigahertz. And in the future, we're working on uh, KA-band, which is 32 gigahertz, which is what Starlink is trying to use as well. Um, Starlink being um, SpaceX's uh, internet satellite service going up around the world and hitting New Zealand now, and there's, you know, live users uh, here in New Zealand on it now. Yeah, so um, I forgot my train of thought. But, um, yeah, we, we operate at X-Band, and we use Mazes, which has uh, a very, very cool uh, characteristic in that, um, just like a laser, the light that's coming out is coherent, which means that they, all the photons that are coming out of the, out of the Mazer have the same characteristics, they're traveling at the same speed in the same direction, and they, they, they have the same characteristics, which means that if you can use an incoming photon to stimulate more photons to be emitted out the other end, if you imagine like a butterfly effect, 
then what happens is one photon is incident upon your maser, and then what comes out the other end is more photons. But they are coherent. They are exact identical copies of the photon that just came in. Which means that if you stage a whole bunch of these back to back to back to back, then you have one photon coming in, two photons coming out, which are identical to the first photon, two photons create four photons, which are directly identical to the very first one, etc., etc., etc. All of a sudden you can amplify what is one photon's worth of signal into a usable number, whatever that number is. And you, all you do is you keep staging it back to back to back until you can get it up to a level that is yeah, usable with you know computers or electronics or whatever else you're doing to your signal. Um, so we're, I'm working on uh, on that, which is basically how do we make this more efficient? So we've had at the Deep Space Network uh, somewhere in the in the high teens, 17, 18 different versions of the late of the Maser, and it's called a Ruby. Uh, ruby maser because we use a ruby crystal which is that beautiful red crystal um, and we've had multiple multiple different iterations and upgrades over the years and most of those upgrades because they're not cheap to develop have been uh, pushed because of the need to support missions like Voyager Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 which if, for those who don't know are the very first and the furthest away spacecraft that we as humans have ever sent into space and they were launched back in uh, I don't know when the date is and that's bad of me but they also hold the so-called golden record that represents human life and it tells you know has bird sounds and mathematical things on it and it's supposed to represent humans to whoever who might find it um, and the need to support those missions as Voyager moved further and further away, because again, they were the furthest uh, out spacecraft that we had ever sent out. So, over time, um, initially, it was just around Earth, so we already had the capability of doing that. But then it reached Mars, and then we went, okay, now we need to increase our sensitivity to be able to pick up the, the, the uh, signals that they're trying to send back. So we upgraded the Maser. And then they went around to Jupiter, and they went, okay, now we're really far away. <laughs> we need to really upgrade our receive capability. Our transmit capability is fine, because we have all the power in the world to scream at the satellite, you know. But our receive capability, we can't do anything about the satellite. We can only increase how sensitive we are and how yeah, our, our receive capability. So the Jupiter conjunction was a key moment that was actually a really big upgrade to our deep space network capabilities. And that was in part help to help from JAXA, um, uh, the Japanese Jax space agency Jap that is. Japanese, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And they have some very great uh, optics tech, as we know, because they have amazing cameras and stuff like that. But their optical and photonics engineering is top-notch as well. So they were very pivotal as well in the early Ruby cavity mazes that were used for amplification. Also, along the lines, uh, along those times, uh, we developed techniques that allowed us to increase the size of our uh, radio dishes, synthetically increase them. Um, so I explained a little bit about this the other night. Um, is if you, There are a few ways that you can increase your receive capability 
One of them is just to increase how good you are with picking out the noise, uh, the, the signal from the noise. But the other one is just increasing the size of your dish. And that's the, the best way to do it. Is the, the easiest and simplest way to increase your receive capabilities just to make your dish bigger. So we've got a big 70 meter dish at all the DSpace network locations. But really, you're getting to physical limits now. You know, it's to, to make something bigger is sort of just kind of ridiculous. And it's, it's not fiscally responsible either. Um, so we had to find out a different way of increasing the size of our radar dishes without actually building a bigger dish, because 70 meters is already huge. Um, so we came up with, uh, not, we say we, but really the astronomy um, people came up with this technique called VLBI, which stands for Very Long Baseline Interferometry. And it takes advantage of this very cool property of radio signals where you can stack them up on top of each other. And if you receive the same signal from two different places, you can put them on top of each other. And the difference between them allows you to resolve at a, a much higher level of accuracy um, what that signal is just by looking at the difference between two signals or the same signal received at two different places. And the further away you can separate these antennas, the, or, the, or the better so basically what happens is the size of your dish now becomes the effective distance between two, two uh, radio telescopes. So if your telescopes are 100 kilometers away from each other, your, your received antenna dish is now 100 kilometers in diameter. And the further apart you can get them, the better. And the more you can put in, the more telescopes you can put in, you can put five telescopes together all pointing at the same thing, or the better. Wow, so, that's brilliant. Yeah, so during the Jupiter and the Saturn conjunctions of Voyager 1, um, they really improved this technique. And the Goldstone uh, Deep Space Network location in California arrayed with the very large array, BLA array, which is, I think, in one of the deserts ne near nearby. can't remember. Utah, probably Utah. It's That's a big desert. Um, and BLA is a big, big array of, uh, of telescopes. I can't remember how many, but it's multi, like 10, 15 telescopes in the desert there. And they arrayed Goldstone with the very large array, and all of a sudden you have these 20 telescopes that are all pointing, watching this conjunction, this flyby happen. And to facilitate that, we increased our, uh, we improved our mazes, our preamplification as well, but also we improved our uh, atomic clocks, and I realize this is getting really deep now, um, but atomic clocks, again, are really fundamental to how uh, the, our, our communications capability, not only on Earth, but also in deep space, and it actually becomes more of a problem um, the further, apart, further away we go. But yeah, so, so my work is, <laughs> to bring it all back together, uh, is is developing um, this next generation, this next step, the next upgrade that is going to go into the deep space network, uh, because it's been almost ten years since we've last had an upgrade, and uh, again, this isn't um, this isn't just upgrade for upgrade's sake. There actually is a, a few missions that we're trying to support uh, in the decadal plan uh, that is pushing the need for this upgrade. Um, is Mars part of that? So Mars is part of that, but not in the sense that people would think. It's uh, Mars, as it stands now, we have actually a pretty good ca uh, communications capability. Um, 
the, the time delay is not something that we can work around because that is just the universal speed limit is the speed of light. There's, you can't go faster than that. What you can do is transmit more information at once. So you're still going to be waiting 5 to 20 minutes, but you can receive 10 gigabytes of data when you, after you wait 20 minutes as opposed to a single photo or something like that. Our communications capability is better than that, but that's, that's sort of you know, what we're looking to do is increase the amount of information we can send at once rather than increase the speed because we can't do that. Right, because in the, in the past, I mean, in terms of data coming back from from space, you know, if, if you you know go go back, um, yeah, getting back these sort of high resolution color images that we that we get now, um, yeah, would have been very yeah very very limited in terms of what could come back. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the ideal world, you'd see live streaming, um, you know, video, but that would require you know, yeah crazy yeah. sort of so, bandwidth, right? Um, so yeah, the, the, the next steps for the DSpace network in terms of uh, our upgrade plan and the services that we aim to provide in the next 10 years is um, it, it's split into two categories. And one of them we call uh, data for science, which is all of the aperture, you know, radar, science, telescopes, photos, all that stuff. Um, and the other side is called data for public, um, and this is something that people didn't foresee back in the 20th century, you know, when we were still on, you know, black and white TV. Um, but it's something that's happening now, and there's been a lot of push for, is the public outreach. And the public wants HD video, and they want near live stream, if you will. And they want sounds, and they want high-definition vi- photos and stuff like that. And that is also part of the, the plan that we need to, we need to um, uh, support. And also, uh, part of that is the Deep Space Network not only provides communication capabilities, but we also provide tracking. And the Deep Space Network is used to pinpoint the location of these spacecraft. Um, and without the Deep, Deep Space Network, you wouldn't know where these spacecraft are. So that is another capability that we need to improve upon because now we're trying to send things further away and we want these spacecraft to have more autonomous uh, capabilities. You know, they, we want them to be able to land more accurately on Mars or wherever. Um, we want them to be able to land accurately by themselves. And for that, they need more accurate tracking information. And all of that, again, comes back down to how efficiently we can uh, pick out you know, our, our amplifier system. Um, and the required bit rate that we're targeting um, is almost 10 times higher than what we're currently able to sustain. And so the, the, we're currently just in the lower band of being able to stream back HD photos, um, but the target for the 10-year target is to support a 10 times higher bit rate, or one order of magnitude higher, so that we can support synthetic aperture radar, multi-spectral imaging, full HD video sending being sent back. Maybe not in maybe not as a twenty-four-seven stream, but you can record twenty-four-seven video, uh, record HD video, and send it back in the next download. So things like that is uh, is what we're trying to support, and um, and in particular, we want to support that at Mars. 
because that is the the, the next step. Um, yeah, so that that that's that's uh, our plan. <laughs> That's fantastic. Really, really enjoyed delving in there, George. And thanks for keeping it you know, in, a, in a manner that's, you know, I think uh, uh, pretty, pretty accessible. Uh, probably a, a few bits over our discussion um, <laughs> where uh, it's going to vary in terms of, uh, you know, how, how deep you went for people. But uh, no, I thought that was really, really good. We've kind of come to the end of our, our hour. Was there anything else that you wanted to uh, that you wanted to add in before we finish up? Because I mean, on uh, on Clubhouse on our um, evening Kiwi Hangout that we do, so sort of eight thirty p.m. New Zealand time most evenings, um, you've been popping in quite a bit recently, which is is very kind because I know it's uh, often a, a rather strange uh, early hour for uh, for you in New York. We've delved into all sorts of other things, so people are certainly welcome to join in those chats and you you may well catch George but yeah anything else that you, th- you thought we should we should cover off before we close oh if I if I start on a, on another topic now you'll be <laughs> here for another three hours <laughs> you can make this a multi-episode uh, episodal thing we might have to we might have to yeah <laughs> um, but yeah no I, I realized I didn't really go too much into um, the research but um, yeah yeah uh, I guess, in summary, basically, I'm, I'm working on two different things. One of them is uh, optical amplifiers, and that's to uh, amplify using our next-gen laser communications, and we need a way to amplify those as well. So I'm working on semiconductor-based uh, laser optical amplifiers, and it sort of kind of like works like a maser. And then more on the development side, less on the research side, is, as I mentioned, the pre-amplifier uh, which is a Ruby Maser that we're working on. And uh, one cool thing, uh, cool, uh, is that it operates at incredibly low temperatures. We run it at 1.5 Kelvin, and the maximum is around 3.5 Kelvin. Uh, and we use both liquid helium and liquid nitrogen to cool our entire system down to those temperatures. Um, because actually on Earth, the biggest source of noise is, uh, is thermal noise, actually is the biggest uh, source of noise in our, in our signal pathway. So the best way to combat that is to reduce the thermal as much as we can. So we cool everything down to 1.5 to 3 Kelvin. That is the range that we like to keep everything in. And the goal is uh, possibly keep it even cooler if it's possible, which it really isn't. We're really pushing the, pushing the, the limits now. Um, but that allows us to maintain the thermal noise level as low as possible so we can pick up those very, very faint signals from deep space. Um, so I'm working on that as well. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, I well, really appreciate your time, George. It's been uh, really fascinating to delve in, hear some, some of your story and uh, some insights into what you've been working on and the challenges that you're working to uh, solve. It's fantastic. Yeah, I know there will be some others would like to uh, like to hear more, so we might have to look at uh, another another episode. I will put up on the NZ Tech Podcast website a link that we now have uh, for those that are curious about coming onto the Clubhouse platform um, and maybe want to participate in that um, Kiwi Hangout that that happens uh, each evening uh, New Zealand time. 8.30, that link will give listeners basically bypass the wait list onto Clubhouse. So, yeah, we've, we've got, yeah, presuming you're in, you're in 
quick. Um, that should be enough really for anyone that's listening to get in on that link and to get into Clubhouse. I imagine Clubhouse are going to open up more broadly. Even if you're on, because Clubhouse has been iOS only, but the Android app is coming very soon, probably less than a month. So I'd suggest if you are interested in getting on Clubhouse, just use that link with your iOS or Android. Uh, and then that gets you um, gets you moving with access. Pretty sure that link will will at least get you um, to maybe bypass the queue, even if you're on Android. I hope that's the case. So, yeah, give that a try, and um, yeah, you may be able to get a chance to ask George. I would have loved to sort of delve in a little bit more in terms of uh, tips for those who are really feeling like they'd like to get into the space sector. Uh, but these these are topics that we might well be able to cover on Clubhouse or, or possibly on another podcast uh, episode. So, yeah, huge thanks for your time, George. Um, of course. And, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> we haven't uh, stolen too much of your sleep, so thanks. No worries, any time. A special thank you to our partners who make the New Zealand Tech Podcast possible and are proud supporters of the tech and innovation ecosystems here in New Zealand. They are Umbrella Connect, Vocus, Vodafone, Spark, HP and Gorilla Technology. New Zealand's Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.